This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. Today's guest is extraordinary for her many talents, her journey with bees, and her generous spirit. She's the owner of Zia Queen Bees, based out of New Mexico, the land of enchantment, which is also my home state. But the most recent twist in her journey brought her to the Iberian Peninsula for the Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellowship. I'm so happy to share the first of many visits with Melanie Kirby. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I have been so looking forward to this. Me too. Um, for those of you who don't know Melanie, she was in Spain doing the National Geographic Storytellers. What would you describe it as? A project? It was definitely a project. <laughs> um, and it's actually the way they term it, the Fulbright t- titled it as a um, open study research project. And then, so as I applied for that and I, um, was very excited to first hear that I was an alternate, I was like, Oh, okay. Well, no. So when I applied, um, and Fulbright is actually something that I've always wanted to apply for. I mean, I've been thinking about it for gosh, at least probably 20 years, but it just, you know, between starting my farm and then having kids. And I didn't know every time I would think about it, the deadline had just passed because they do have it available for sort of um, professionals to do you don't necessarily have to be a student mm-hmm. um and so yeah just the timing wasn't right but then I happened to be going to Washington State University because I decided to go back to grad school and um they had an informational meeting and I was like that's right I've always been interested in this I should go so I applied and the it literally was like you know got in by the hair of my chinny chin chin like the deadline and, and trying to get my letters of support. And I had all my essays done and my letters of references done, but I kept trying to reach out to a Spanish researcher for the open study research project. You have to have a host country liaison, right? Mm-hmm. And so Spain has some bee research centers, but this was August and everybody goes on holiday in August. So I couldn't get a hold of anybody. No. So it's really, <laughs> really stressing. And then I just happened to do a Google search and, um, Dr. Jaime Prudencio Garcia, who's actually from Penn State University, he uh, came up in as a search and he's an agroecologist, but also a beekeeping um, instructor there at Penn State. And so I reached out to him and asked him if he knew of any Spanish beekeepers or beekeeping organizations and researchers that I could connect with. And by the way, this is time sensitive, like <laughs> you know, I need a quick turnaround, but he was great. We had a conversation. I guess he realized I wasn't as crazy probably as my email sounded (laughs) yeah he reached out to a few of his contacts in Spain and so I ended up connecting with they're called COAG and it stands for in Spanish it's Coordinadores Organizados de Agricultura y Ganadería which in English means Coordinated Organization of Farmers and Ranchers and so they're non-governmental organization but they are also um have different technicians for various sectors. So whether you're growing olives or doing, um, you know, pigs or doing um, wine or doing honey, 
they have these various uh, extension agents. And so I was connected with them and they were able to sign this letter of support. So yeah, so that, that happened. And then I got word probably like four months later that I was um, a semifinalist. And when you're a semifinalist, then National Geographic reached out and said that semifinalists are invited to apply for what they call an enhancement award, which is a storytelling sort of component. And you get some mentorship from Nat Geo and the ability to share your experiences via their platforms. And so I thought to myself, well, shoot, I'm going to apply. Maybe this will like double my chances. And yeah, then it was, it was interesting because I then come March, now we're, you know, flash forward to March. That, that whole process started in August, as I mentioned, and now, you know, 2018, I guess. And then now March, 2019, I got a, um, I received an email from the Fulbright saying that I was an alternate and I was going, oh, okay, well, if somebody backs out, then, you know, that's me, but I came close. That's, that's, you know better than nothing um, because I really was surprised. I knew it was very competitive and I had, I really, I hadn't gotten myself emotionally invested in it yet because I didn't want to be disappointed mm -hmm. if I didn't get it. But then the very next day I got an email from National Geographic saying that I was um, one of the finalists for that. And so I got flown to DC and yeah, every year they pick um, between one and five uh, fellows and so they they chose four this year and so I'm one of four um, out of the whole group and so um, the other three are women uh, professionals as well one of them is actually she's based in Vietnam in the South Pacific she was a surfer in San Diego a sponsored surfer for many years Emmy Koch and she runs something called um, Beyond the Surface International and she realized that as she was surfing in all these fantastic isolated places that a lot of these places were surrounded by small fishing villages and they were being really outcompeted by large fishing companies. Oh. And so her focus now is really trying to bring awareness to just the cultural and traditional aspects, the socioeconomic impact of, of fishing and fishing commercially and what that does to small scale fishing villages. And so that's her project. The, um, another uh, person in our group is Aaliyah Pierce and she's a spoken word poet from New Jersey and she is a Caribbean American and so she her project is doing spoken word throughout carnival in Trinidad and Tobago so she got to go um, down to the islands and spend wow. her time there and the third one is actually a young woman named Madison Robley and Madison what had been an exchange student I believe Madison is originally from Missouri she had been an exchange student to Nepal and really liked it and wanted to go back so what when she was an exchange student there she was staying with a host family and she saw one day like all these people rushing down the street after this big truck and she asked her family why are they all running after that truck and, she, and they said well that's the water truck it only comes every two weeks and she's like what they we have running water and they said yes we do but not everybody here does wow and so she really was surprised to learn that there are people living in communities and especially even larger cities that don't have regular access to running water and so her project is revolving around just water access in Nepal and um, how how innovative and sort of uh, creative ways that community members go about trying to secure their water. Do and you get to me. do you get to hang out with these ladies? I do. Are they I a do. girl well, gang? Obviously, we're scattered right now. So, but we actually have um we have an online meeting coming up later this week. So, oh. and we're supposed to uh, we spent a week together in July last July of 2019. 
getting um, an intensive training short course at Nat Geo in mm-hmm. public speaking, videography, um, photography, various aspects of trying to put together your own little like story, or at least how, how you can share your story. And so um, that's how I got to first meet them. And they're, they're wonderful, wonderful human beings and doing really good work. So basically, we're supposed to reunite and do a pre- we each get to do a presentation on our projects um, for a Nat Geo Nights uh, program. And normally they do that middle of July, and that that's when the new cohort has been selected. And so then we get to kind of pass a week with the new group. And um, when I got to go to the training last year, I got to pass a week with the former group, which those are also fantastic individuals. I mean, we talk about them for hours too. Um, so yeah, so we'll see because it's it's uh, it's still supposed to happen. We just don't know if it's going to get postponed maybe mm-hmm. to later in the fall or not. But. What a life-changing opportunity. Yeah, I'm still like, yeah, that happened. It's still very surreal to, to like own it. <laughs> yeah, like, and the yeah, specialized yeah, training and all of that just sounds like a dream come true. Well, I will definitely share that I feel like it's it's been this dream that I've been envisioning for, gosh, multiple decades, at least two decades, mm-hmm. you know, when I first got into beekeeping as dreaming and this vision of, of being able to not only make a living with my bees, but to be able to, I guess, in a sense... I mean, I don't want it to sound cliche, but it really is to sort of give back to the community that has allowed me to become who I am, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm from New Mexico. Um, My family's from Southern New Mexico and we're a part of a Native American tribe down there called Tortugas Pueblo. And um, we're mixed descent. So we're Spanish and Native American, but then also, I mean, my mother was a Peace Corps volunteer and she met my father in the Caribbean. So I also have, um, you know, that, that flowing through my veins as well. I mean, my last name is Irish of all things. Do I really look Irish, right? um, Yeah, so uh, I'm American at this point, very much so, you know, just a a melange of different sort of, not only genetics, but but perspectives. And I knew that, like my motherhood in Peace Corps, that was really my inspiration for wanting to give back initially. And so I decided to enlist as a Peace Corps volunteer as well and was given the assignment of beekeeping and that was 23 years ago and I had no idea really I mean literally my life plan was I was going to you know gra- I graduated with my bachelor's I'd actually studied marine biology fisheries for a couple years in Miami had way too much fun I was like a raver for <laughs> a I sold my turntables and then um then I totally switched gears and went back to New Mexico and went to a small uh small school called St. John's College which does a great books program so we read a lot of old dead people. It's a lot of philosophy and sort of history of science and the ethics and um, and that sort of thing. And I, it really taught me, you know, you learn how to learn there because if you want to participate, you it's all reading and discussion, and so you're encouraged to to communicate with people. And so, of course, I love talking, and so that was like right up my alley. Um, yeah, no, so I graduated from there and knew that I was going to do Peace Corps, but then my plan literally was after Peace Corps, I was going to move to San Francisco and be a DJ. That was my life plan. <laughs> and, you know, I got beekeeping as my assignment in Peace Corps, and that just changed everything for me. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I had no idea that it would become sort of the 
the professional declaration in my life that it has, but it's taken me um, to so many interesting places. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've I've come from that. Well, I was very hyperactive as a kid. I probably would have been diagnosed with with ADD, um, you know, had that been more, I guess, noticeable, or at least in terms of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But my mother just kept me very busy. So I'm always very, very active, wanting to do things. I'm a constant worrier. So if I'm not doing something, then I, then I worry and I fret. So for my own mental health, I really try and just keep busy. Yeah. And when I'm doing things where I feel like I'm engaged in the community and supporting other people, it's, you know, selfish to a certain extent, but then it makes me feel good. And then I, I feel like, okay, yeah, life is, life is good. Like we, we all work together as, as do all the worker bees in a hive, you know, Mm -hmm. I consider myself just another one of them. And so, yeah, I mean, once I did Peace Corps, I did that for a two-year, three-month commitment. Um, I made a really good friend down there, one of my closest friends who I'm still in contact with, named Shimena Gall. She actually works for USAID and is living in Bangkok right now. But um, <laughs> she, uh, she grew up in Hawaii. And so her mom had come to visit when we were in Peace Corps, and her mom and I hit it off. Her mom had a very small gardenia farm and really wanted some help after uh, Shimena and I finished our service. And so she said, if you want to come and work at my farm, you know, I've, you've got a place to stay. And of course me coming from, you know, the Southern Rockies, high desert, I was like, oh my gosh, job Hawaii. I'm there, you know, so going out there, um, and worked for her, for her, her growing season. And while I was there, I happened to learn about Kona queen and Hawaiian queen. And there's also big Island queen. And so I had no idea. Like I really had very rustic, um, out in the bush. Like, I mean, I did all, when I was in Peace Corps, it was all wild swarm captures using a machete, um, <laughs> trying not to get, you know, bit by snakes and all those crazy things. And a little different our- than urban beekeeping. Right. And we made our own um, smokers out of uh, old coffee cans. And I mean, it was very, very rustic. Wow. And so here it was all of a sudden now I'm in Hawaii and I'm, I'm actually standing in line at the DMV behind somebody who's wearing a Kona Queen shirt. And my friend who had taken me there was like, you're a beekeeper, introduce yourself. And of course I was like, no, I'm too shy. But anyways, I eventually curiosity got the better of me and I, I tapped him on the back and I said, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a beekeeper too. And then he's like, oh my gosh, my boss is always looking for more people with, um, with experience. You, you should call him. I was like, oh, okay. So I ended up calling the owner, which is Gus Rouse at the time. And um, he knew because it's an island, of course, everybody knows everybody. So he knew, <laughs> he knew Carol Christensen, my friend's mom, who had this gardenia farm and used to have bees there and this and that. And he was like, well, just, just come work for me. And I said, well, no, I, I committed to her till, you know, the end of her growing season. He said, okay, well, call me after. So now it's like May or something. And I call him up because I finished the, the gardenia growing season with my friend's mom. And he said, oh, I really don't need anybody right now. Oh. And so I was like, oh, oh. because over, like, it really built up like, oh my God, I'm going to go work at like the world's largest queen rearing place. Like I knew, you know, my, my sort of exposure to queen rearing, especially having been in Paraguay in South America was just you cut the little cell out and you carefully put it over in a split. Like that's mm-hmm. pretty much the queen rearing that I, that I had known and experienced. And um, so it ended, ended up leaving Hawaii and went to work in Mexico of all places in the Yucatan Peninsula, 
doing something non-bee related, but I did get to play with bees while I was there. I worked at a bamboo furniture making <laughs> farm <laughs> with uh, 70 Mayan artisans, which was really cool. Wow. And I was a quality control intern. So I was basically, they had the, these contracts with Neiman Marcus for like bamboo soap dishes and picture frames and, you know, garden love seats and these very interesting sort of things you can make with bamboo. And so I basically had to, you know, change the metrics because it was coming in in inches and change it into, you know, the metric system over the centimeters and then make, translate that and just make sure that people understood what, you know, making sure the whole process worked before these products got shipped back to the States. And um, yeah, I was there for about six months. And in that time, I got bumped from quality control interns all of a sudden, like general manager. And um, yeah, so it was, it became became a little bit more stressful but I also just really missed the bees and I was like yeah. I know I need to to get back with them and so I reached out to Kona Queen again and by now internet's going I mean like we're talking here like this is early 2000 you know like 1999 2000 and um he I spoke with them they said oh okay well after the holidays why don't you come on out so I was like okay good I'm gonna get to go work <laughs> so then comes January and I call and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to come out. And they're like, oh, oh, well, we offered that job to uh, to a beekeeper named Melody from France. And I was like, wait, what? So once again, I was denied. Oh. And I was like, what? Oh my gosh. So I was pretty like, oh man, you know, this I got to figure out something. And I was calling a lot of, I mean, New Mexico is not known for large scale honey production because we are a drier state. Mm -hmm. And so if we get rains at the right time, it can be stellar bumper crops. But if you don't get rain, it's, you know, very dry. So um, I called a few different beekeepers who were in the area and, you know, even volunteered just saying, oh, I'm, I'm very willing to just come and volunteer. And I had one woman, actually the mother of a, of a commercial guy, who gave me a two hour lecture, no, no exaggeration on how I was in the wrong line of work. That this was a man's job. This was a man's industry. No. And that if I really actually, yeah, if I really wanted to do bees, um, that possibly I should just focus more on genetics and like work in a lab. And I was like, but I like being in the field. I mean, I really had had, you know, from being in college and, you know, high school straight to college and, and getting the sort of book smarts and then all of a sudden having this rustic experience in South America, living for a couple of years with peasant farmers who only had a third grade education, but who were brilliant. I really had become quite enamored of field education. Like I, mm -hmm. I realized that books are great, but I really want to learn from just being in the field. And so, you know, for me, I wasn't ready to go to grad school at that time. I literally thought, no, I, I really want to just like, just get back, you know, work with bees, learn about American beekeeping and work in the field. I'm not shy to be a laborer. Like that's actually what I want to do. I want to farm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that, that, that conversation with that woman was not very happy, but it really lit a fire under me because mm -hmm. I, I realized I was like, well, nobody's going to tell me I can't do this. <laughs> you know? And I just really was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try and make it work. So my good friend that I mentioned, Shimena, who's in Hawaii, she called me up and said, hey, I was driving around the island. I stopped in this little country store and there's a sign in there and they're looking for beekeepers. And I was like, what? She's like, oh yeah, they're called Hawaiian Queen. And 
And of course I was like, well, I wanted to work for the world's largest. Like, <laughs> she's like, just call the guy and, you know, introduce yourself. So anyways, I called him and this owner, his name is Michelle Crones. And um, he, very interesting man. He had grown up in, Aus- or I'm sorry, he's of Austrian descent, but he had grown up in Argentina. And then he had had a honey production company in Costa Rica for like 20 years. And then he had decided to move to Hawaii and he wanted to get into queen production. So um, I called him up and I told him, you know, of course, I don't have any queen experience, but I'm familiar with working with bees. And, and he's like, oh, I'll fly you out. And I thought, oh, okay, here we go. So I went and worked for him for a season. And I really, and I credit him. He's the one who taught me how to graft, which is just transferring, you know, fertilized larva into the special cups. Um, and he, yeah, he, he ran a really quality system. He was still figuring it out because he was newer to, I mean, even though he'd been living in Costa Rica, Hawaii has similarities, but you know, there's a difference in some of the, um, seasonality of things there Mm -hmm. and his location being on the leeward side and so yeah so I worked for him for about six months and I kept in touch with that beekeeper that I had been in line you know behind at the DMV and um so when I called and said oh I'm coming back out I'm gonna work at this place of course then he told Gus Rouse and then very funny Gus called me and was like I thought you were gonna work here and I said well I tried but you guys told me you already (laughs) There was a little mix up with the names. (laughs) Right. Right. And funny enough, I said, how's the French beekeeper? And he said, oh, she just only wanted to hang out at the beach. She doesn't work here anymore. And I said, oh, go figure. Right. (laughs) Nothing nothing against the French. But, you know, if you're going to go all that way, you might as well go to the beach. Right. So, yeah, no. So at any rate, he told me, he said, well, when you're done there, you come straight over here. And I said, are you sure? Because twice now it hasn't worked. He's all, no, no, no. When you're done there, you come straight over here. And that's a little bit was, I think, part of uh, like island competition. You know, everybody knows everybody there and they're uh-huh. all competition. So funny enough. Yeah. And Michelle was, he produced about 35,000 queens a year and then he would shut down for part of the year. And so um, once he shut down, then I switched over to Kona Queen and then I was there for about five years. And Kona Queen in comparison, I mean, 35,000 sounds like a lot, which it is. But Kona Queen was doing 250,000 queens a year. So it was, you know, I jumped into the frying pan. But I I really enjoyed working there in terms of, I mean, I worked with beekeepers from all over the world. There were beekeepers that would, you know, from the Southern Hemisphere that would come up there when it was their winter. And um, so I worked with Chileans, um, French beekeepers, Scottish beekeepers, Kiwi beekeepers, New Zealanders. Canadians, there were a fair amount of Canadians that would come and work there. And then a few also as well that would come from the northern states like um, North Dakota and, you know, Montana and stuff for for the wintertime. So, yeah, I learned a lot and I, I really got good at grafting. I used to graft every morning with this one woman, a Hawaiian woman named Heidi, who she blew me out of the water. I mean, I would graft one to every like three that she would graft. She was so fast. But we grafted... Um, about three hours a day, six days a week for every day, every you know week of the year, um, except for probably like a few days over Christmas. So I got I got pretty good at that, <laughs> um, and that was just from practice. But I I loved being in the field, and so at that point in time, I was the only female on the field crew, 
because mm -hmm. Heidi, after she would graft, would then go into the, the Quonset hut and just start making cages, um, making the fondant, uh -huh. build cages and preparing all of that. And then the only other woman on staff was Nancy, who was the office manager. And so Nancy Esco, who recently retired from there. She was originally from Alabama, such a sweetheart. And so she ran the office and then I was the only other female on the crew. And so after grafting in the morning, then I would catch a ride with the guy who maintained the breeder colonies and we would go catch up with what you called the, the catching crew and we'd catch queens for the rest of the day. They had 15 yards of 1500 nukes. So every day we were catching 1500 queens thereabouts. Um, and then um, yeah, after the 15th day, you'd start the rotation again. We did a bunch of pollen patties and yeah, it was, I literally went from a very rustic experience, you know, at the yeah. like, I wonder when you're, when you're working with that many colonies and you have a strict schedule of what you have to do with them and you're doing it day after day after day, do you ever lose some of the magic that, that you feel when you're working with the bees? Like, do you, do you get into a special place with them when you're, when you're on that, like level of task i would say for me as just an employee it was still very magical because every day i got to play with bees <sighs> every day i was going out there and like you know looking at hives trying to find the queen we'd have little competitions amongst us like who could catch the most in a certain <laughs> time and you know and gus was a really smart businessman i mean he he incentivized our our catching so um, you wanted to leave the mating nuke in the best possible shape because immediately after catching, we put another batch of cells in that were very ripe that were going to emerge. And so our, for every percentage point above, I think it was 75%. Like, so for the whole yard, say there's 1500 and then say we would catch, you know, 80% of that for every percentage point above 75, we would get a $10, uh, bonus so we get okay. you get 50 extra bucks every you know and that's just from one bee yard so if you're doing 15 I mean you could get several hundred extra bucks per pay period um so it made us really want to to do it well mm -hmm. and we had a crew of about 19 and yeah there was also the bounce crew that I would go with sometimes which those were the guys who would go out and you know borrow bees from the support colonies basically shaking extras out to mm -hmm. bring back to sort of to add to the mating nukes that were low population. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a, a taste of factory farming, which for me was just blew my mind. I was very impressed with how coordinated um, they, they managed everything and had stuff sort of parceled out and scheduled and, and delegated so that everything got done. That was very impressive. But I also knew very much in the back of my mind that whenever I had my own bees, but that's not how I was going to do it. Mm -hmm, you know, like I had, mm -hmm. and not to, not that they were doing it um, in a bad way, I would say, but their, their focus definitely was, you know, on quantity. They needed to, to get a lot of Queens out. And it wasn't until, you know, I worked for Gus for five years and then left, ended up working for another beekeeper in Florida actually for three years and then sporadically off and on. Um, who was a migratory operator between Florida and Wisconsin, that's Gary Oreskovich. And Gary was um, extremely conscientious beekeeper, still is. I mean, he's like 50 some years now in the business. Um, he uh, really, he saw and milled all his own wood for all of his colonies. I mean, he was wow. extremely conscientious. And so I, I saw that you could be a commercial beekeeper and um, 
implement more mindful management practices. Mm -hmm. And so most of my system is modeled off of what I learned from working for Gary in Florida. And um, yeah, and then so worked for him for three years and then learned how to do package production there. We still did Queens and then we also did comb honey, orange blossom and clover comb honey. When, once you take them up to Wisconsin, we do the clover. Yeah, no, it was just, it, that's where I met my farm partner, Mark. And so when we teamed up and Mark's from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So he had been running his 50 hives for honey production at that time, Superior Honey Farms was the name of his little company and all his honey got sold to the local co-op. And um, yeah, we just, I actually had plans to go work in New Zealand after working in Florida and uh-huh. somehow I chose Michigan instead of New Zealand. Go figure. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it worked out good. I mean, we teamed up and so Mark had been doing honey production and I had the queen wearing skills. So we decided to double his numbers and, and for some reason I thought, well, let's leave, you know, half in Michigan and take half to New Mexico. I really wanted to get back to my own home state, but I never kept bees in my state. I mean, I knew if I recognized a few of the plants, but I did, couldn't tell you when things bloomed. I mean, I really, because I hadn't beekeeped here at all. And so he and I learned that together. And um, over time, we ended up just staying longer and longer in New Mexico, just because it has more sunshine. And um, But it was when I became my own sort of co-owner and operator of my own farm that then I gained a whole new level of respect for my previous employers mm-hmm. because I realized how much, um, sorry, motorcycle going by. Um, yeah, I, I gained a whole new level of respect for, for my employers because I realized that, you know, apart from them working with bees, which is already a sort of niche industry. Yes, they wanted to make money, but they weren't billionaires by any means, you know, yeah. and they were doing it because they loved it. Cause there's a lot of other things you could do <laughs> besides even commercial beekeeping. That's good. That are going to, that could make you money. Right. But I also realized too, that Gus felt a real responsibility. I mean, he had beekeepers from all over the world relying on him for queens. And, you know, I don't even know how he slept at night. I mean, here it was, I only produced at the height of my production was 3000 queens a year, you know, and I was losing sleep at night. So I can only imagine <laughs> when you're producing 250,000 or even 35,000 and, um, and you've got, you know, uh, two dozen employees, you know, that you're keeping on payroll and you're trying to provide them with, um, you know, health insurance and retirement opportunities and things like that. So I gained a whole new level of respect for them. Um, you know, still to this day, like I've, some of my best memories are from working at those places. And um, I, it really helped me to sort of glean the best from each place and learn, you know, what to avoid in terms of some of the, the more, um, you know, sort of negative situations that I encountered there. And, mm-hmm. and then to, to utilize the good things I learned to build my own situation. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of what brought me to my Zia Queen Bees. Um, farm which we established in 2005 and so this year is the 15 year anniversary of the farm congratulations which is pretty exciting and, a, and it's a miracle I don't I'm just not full of white hair or bald at this point <laughs> <laughs> from all the stress but we you know we stayed small um one due to choice and then also circumstance you know we mm-hmm. built Mark didn't come from a farming background. I definitely did not either. And so we built everything out of pocket. And, you know, with beekeeping, some years are good, some are bad. Um, 
we had our worst year in 2011 because mm. there was a huge fire in Los Alamos, which we don't even have bees in Los Alamos, but um, there, it's called the Los Conchas fire and it, it just burned, I don't know how many thousand acres. Well, what it, all that smoke drifted. I was actually pregnant with my son at the time. I had to go downstate um, for two weeks to my mother's because the smoke was so bad. Oh and we God. had this whole contingency plan, like, oh my gosh, what are their spot fires? Like, I'll take the kids and the chickens and you handle the bees. And, you know, it was really kind of scary. But that year, what we lost 40% to bears in August. And it was a big wake up call because we've always had some mountain yards which have fencing on them, but we also knew, well, the bears only come down for apples starting in September. So we'll just move them back down to the valley. And um, we were living in the Northern Rio Grande Valley at that time. And uh, that year, yeah, it just, the vegetation got wiped out. And so we had kept all of our hives in the valley because the mountains were seemingly dry that year. And these people were still irrigating for alfalfa down in the valley. And we didn't use barefoot seed because we were spoiled. We had never had an issue. And because of that vegetation getting wiped out, the bears came down early and we had 12 different yards just hit boom, boom, boom. So lost some really precious breeders, lost over $10,000 in equipment that we had, you know, bought with our hard earned little money there (laughs) over the years. um, Yeah, it was pretty devastating. And we had to ask ourselves, you know, like, well, do we just buy a bunch of packages and start over? It's like, no, we've, we've been working on these breeding lines and the stock lines, you know, for, him for five years before I met him. And then now collectively, you know, that was six years into it. So total already 11 years, we've been working on these breeding lines. And I, I told him, I said, you know, I think we just need to build off of what we have. So it was, it was a slow recovery. It took us several years. We still have never gotten back to the numbers we had then, but I attribute that partially to, you know, I, I had to now split my time with my real babies. Right. So I had you know, two infants and well, one toddler, one infant. And so uh, Mark and I would tag team, you know, I had these wonderful delusions of grandeur, like, oh, I'll just put the baby in the hammock and the net oh, will be over and I'll, yeah. I'll be catching queens. No. And it, it <laughs> until they start crawling and get mobile and then they want to like, you know, move around and you're like, yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Well, I'll go in the morning, you go in the afternoon. And so we started tag divide team. and conquer divide and conquer yeah and I really I I attribute our sort of stamina at this point our endurance to um to my family my mother and my sister my mother's a retired educator my sister is an early childhood educator but both of them um tolerate my beekeeping (laughs) and so I mean I I can't tell you how many times I've like coerced them into like just help me move a few eyes tonight or just help me go give them some honey frames like um but so they've learned to tolerate it. But no, my mother eventually bit the bullet too because she wanted to be near her grandkids. Yeah. And so she, they moved up north. But yeah, they would come and stay for a couple weeks. And that way Mark and I then could go out together and get caught up. And then finally she moved up and, and has been, yeah, they've been a godsend because they help with watching the kids. Yeah. Trying to do everything. Yeah. But yeah, so we had a great run. I mean, we're still operating. I focus a little bit more on research now and Mm -hmm. um, community outreach um, projects. And Mark is still just hardcore worker bee. I mean, he really likes just, you know, keeping bees, um, you know, going and maintaining them and harvesting and doing all that whole process. And then we collaborate with our queen rearing um, 
I really hit a point, especially after I had my son, who's now eight. So in 2011 was when he was born. Um, just all that, all those years of repetitive motion of bending over for beehives. And um, of course, like getting a little bit heavier myself. Like I just, my back really started to grumble. And so I realized a few years ago that I really needed to to change my game. I love this mm -hmm. industry. I want to stay with it for as long as I can, but I couldn't keep doing it the way I had been. And I had been lucky enough to apply for a few um, uh, sustainable ag research education grants, SARE.org, um, which offers good funding for uh, various farming endeavors. Um, I'd been lucky enough to apply for a couple of those grants and get them, and which really kind of helped to put my breeding program on the map and to to allow us to do more um, outreach. And, and I guess that's kind of how I ended up creating a little bit of a, of a name for myself in particular. It was really because of grant objectives. I mean, they require you to share what you're doing. And so mm -hmm. I would say, oh, well, well, I'm gonna write an article or, oh, I'll do a presentation. And so yeah. that's really kind of what, what launched that side of my outreach efforts. Um, that's when, so really when we first met, you were at the Oregon State Beekeepers Association Conference and you gave a talk, but I was also lucky to get to spend a little bit of time with you. But I had first heard of you from Ange Roll at They Keep Bees as somebody who was a, a queen rearing mentor. They are wonderful. Um, Ange is really great. And I met Ange in... 2018 I believe mm -hmm. at a slow food event so it was my first time going I had heard of the slow food um, program for a while and I knew that they had a, a sort of biannual meeting every other year they would meet and so I was able to apply to be a U.S. delegate and that's you what are just out there in the world well I'll tell you one of the things that <laughs> You know, part of it is from my Peace Corps experience. Like I love traveling. I just, I, I'm sort of a closet anthropologist at heart. Um, I really love learning about other cultures. And the more that I got involved with beekeeping and then especially working at Coney Queen where I got to work with beekeepers from other countries, I just really became fascinated with, wow, beekeeping exists almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a culture to it right and there's traditions to it and there's um you know varying levels of participation from you know honey hunting to of course bee having and then to beekeeping and then you know you've got queen rearing queen breeding you've got research you've got honey production you've got pollination and there's all these you know just a myriad of facets to the industry and being a hyperactive individual as i mentioned like this is almost I mean, I couldn't have found a more perfect fit because <laughs> we're dealing with such a dynamic industry. And yeah, yeah, I, I feel like I'm always learning something new. I'm really fascinated with apotherapy. That's another sort of facet to um, the be human relationship that that I really am, you know, encouraged to pursue more. And yeah, so I just really, I just got sort of that you know, the bug bit, so mm -hmm. to speak, or stung yeah. in that case where it's really interesting to me that people that really get deep into bees, it is not always by choice that they were guided to where they are. It's like the bees have guided them and they certainly have guided you <laughs> from having ambitions to wanting to be a DJ. Right. <laughs> 
Well, and it's funny because that, that connects back to that sort of DJ thing in that one, I think the bees found me and I'm forever grateful to that, you know. I think had I stuck with DJing in the conventional sense of like being at clubs, you know, till all hours of the morning, you know, who knows what I would have got other things I would have gotten myself involved in, but it's about the sound and it's about the energy. And that's really, there goes that motorcycle again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's about the sound and the energy. It really is. And I, and the hives provide that for me, their humming, their vibrations. I mean, it, especially for someone who's very hyperactive like myself, they really help me get in the zone. They are my therapy. They calm me down. They make, they center me. And so in a sense, it's like, I'm, they're DJing for me now, you know? <laughs> and I, and I just haven't gotten bored with it at all. They give you they, the beats. <laughs> right. They give me Yeah. That's sorry. Okay. That was a bad, okay. bad pun. <laughs> It was good. It was good. I giggled. giggled. You know, having my kids actually really was what opened my eyes to the larger world. Like there, there's the world of bees, there's the world of bees and humans, but there's also a world that's above and beyond beekeeping, you know, and, and I found that they, my children actually made me sane again, because I was crazy for bees for, I mean, I still am crazy. But, um, but I put it in perspective, you know, because I realized too, you know, one, I don't want my children to hate what what we do. I mean, mm-hmm. my farm partner Mark used to used to say to folks who were like, "Oh, how cool! Your kids get to grow up at the bee farm," and he's all, "Are you kidding me? I would not wish this on my worst enemy." <laughs> <laughs> and so it's funny because we involve them. In fact, you know, um, after I get off talking with you, I'm taking them. With me, we're going up to the farm. So because they go to school here in town, which has a little bit more amenities, we're about 20 minutes from the farm. So um, we used to all be at the farm. And then as my kids started getting more into school, we, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll get us a little base in town. Plus my mother and sister live here. And so we're going up to the farm and they're gonna help me do a graph. So it's funny because my daughter's at an age now where she can really do it. Whereas mm-hmm. before, you know, I have, photos of her being you know like four and five saying she's helping me but she's just sitting there eating honey with a grafting (laughs) (laughs) but now she whatever works (laughs) whatever keeps them busy whatever yeah so yeah no I would love to to chat more I mean I I kind of just you know gushed out where who I am and where I came from yeah there's 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 just so much more there's so much more to you that I want to share with everybody but I do well, want I do want our listeners to know that you and I do have a couple things in common. I'm also a New Mexico native. I didn't know that. Yeah. Did I know that? Uh, Did you- I forgot. Well, the morning that you and I got to hang out at the conference was the morning after the banquet the night before. And there was some serious <laughs> drinking happening the night before. And I think everybody was green the next morning and <laughs> experiencing memory problems and all of that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm a New Mexico native and I had a little spot on National Geographic too. So those are two cool, cool little things that we have in common. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. That's what, well, now it's coming back to me. I'm like, oh, that's right. Because you were, okay, remind me which town you grew up in. Or you were Albuquerque. 
Albuquerque. Yeah. We have the tricultural influence, you know? Well, and I remember growing up and like going to Santa Fe and going to the churches that they have there and seeing um, like the Navajo Indians set up with their handmade jewelry and all of the silver and the turquoise. Yeah. The roasting chilies. Right. Oh, man. That's one smell. That's what brings me home. It That's is, what brings me back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a um, a company here in Portland that roasts New Mexico chilies. And they go around to the different, you know, New Seasons markets. And they'll be like, okay, we're going to be at this location this day. So you can go and buy fresh roasted hatch green chilies. Wow. Well, that goes to show how deep the addiction is. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's basically worldwide. I mean, once you have it, you it's hard to walk away. Yeah, my yeah. farm partner, Mark, when he, you know, of course, coming from Michigan, where it's like black pepper is spicy. He was like, <laughs> he, we went somewhere when he first got here and um, to get breakfast. And I asked for a side of green chili. And he was like, oh, OK, now that's ridiculous on your eggs for breakfast. Oh, yes. <laughs> years and now he's like can i get an extra side of chili you know like so it totally uh totally grew on him yeah yeah melanie thank you thank you i appreciate your flexibility oh totally anytime you want to chat some more i mean there's a current project i'm working on which is kind of metamorphosized over the past just month given the pandemic yeah um that's that's you know something else and then yeah i mean there's few other things I could talk more even on just like breeding philosophies. Yeah, and, I would love to know. do an episode about genetics because I think that for a lot of backyard beekeepers who want to take it to the next level, that's right? sort of the direction that they want to go in because everybody's waking up to the fact that we can't keep sustaining the system where we're using bees from out of state in our areas because it's just another challenge for them. Right, right. Well, and it's it's tough because, I mean, we're all well-intentioned and we want to have our bees. Well, many of us want to have our bees as natural as as possible to nurture that natural process. And I definitely fall in that camp. Um, And so when you have, you know, when you have, you don't have a lot of local production, but you have a lot of importation, a lot of those bees, you know, do have traces of quality characteristics. But if they're from high production zones and exactly that sort of this factory farming situation where it's where it's really about numbers, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, these bees are are heavily medicated because that's how they keep them going. And so then they get transported to these other places with very well-intentioned people and they just go cold turkey on them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, well, I'm just going to be totally natural. And it's like, well, that would be great if those bees were capable of doing that on their own it's almost like we have to wean them off and and then find those ones that adapt and survive and then and then work from those gems yeah yeah and for beekeepers who want to get to that point like i want to be treatment free but i you know it takes time and it takes finding the bees with the genetics that can handle it and then just use those ones to make more beehives (laughs) yeah yeah well, and it's, and it's all interconnected. I often tell people another cliche, but it's, you know, it takes a community to raise bees, Yeah. you know, because I, I actually don't own any land. So I rely on the hive hosters, the people who are hosting, what they're spraying or not spraying, what they're watering or not watering. 
And then the fact that the bees fly, you know, above and beyond their own yard. I mean, then you've got a whole community that doesn't realize the the sort of impressions or impact that or the yeah. role that they're playing in that. And so yeah. it really is that's that's really what kind of encourages my I guess my interest in doing outreach because I not only do I like sharing, but I like learning. And the more I learn, the more I, I see how many more pieces are involved, you know, mm-hmm. and not that I know how to put them all together, but it just, I find it very humbling for me. So for me, it's like, okay, well, I, I feel like I can support in this way or in this manner or um, support other people who are then doing something else in their manner and in that way. And, and I think that's just, that's what's so much fun about these people. You can play with everybody <laughs> <laughs> if they want to play. <laughs> oh, this has been the highlight of my week. Oh, so thank you for our time today. You're very welcome. To learn more about Melanie and her work, visit her online at ziaqueenbees.com. Thank you all for listening. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and keep on keeping on. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.